Hi, everyone. My name is Barbara, and I'm very grateful, Alanon. And it's actually Lithia Springs, uh, Lithuania. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm married to Dracula or something. I'm not sure. Um, it's a uh, we let, we got a good laugh out of it. Uh, it is great to be here. We've had a wonderful week. Um, I love the fact that you get so many people involved. No, will mess up mess up a name if I. Uh, tried to uh, list everybody who we've had a meal with or who's helped us. But uh, starting with the Mingus crew that greeted us at 11.30 at night uh, t- uh, when we were running so late to help us get our stuff into the room um, on. Uh, and the first call from Marlene, we're really glad that uh, we could uh, hear with Marlene and Dick and um, all of you. Uh, Dick said it last night, but I want to echo it. Um, we really this is really special that you have an event that is such a, a family uh, recovery oriented event uh, lately you know I've spoken several places where uh, they have the Al-Anon speaker and then they have a AA discussion meeting at the same time because the A's don't want to bother to hear the Al-Anon and, um, and I, I find that sad because uh, this is you know was designed to be a family program where we all get better together. So thank you all for being here and having this game. Um, I, uh, I like to start my talk by sharing with you my 12 steps before Al-Anon. Uh, one, I admitted that I was powerful over others and that your lives were certainly unmanageable. <laughs> Two, came to believe I was the power that could restore you to sanity. <clears throat> Three, made a decision for you to turn your will and life over to the care of me. Four, made a searching and fear-filled inventory uh, of everyone that I knew and found them lacking. Five, admitted to God, myself, and anyone that would have listened the exact nature of your wrongs. Six, made a list of all your defects of character and became willing to assist you in removing all of them. Seven, humbly, ha, assisted you in removing your defects of character except when to do so would cause me harm. Eight, made a list of all those who'd harmed me and vowed to get even with them all. Nine, waited and waited and waited and waited for everyone to make direct amends to me. Ten, continue to take your inventory and when you were wrong, promptly pointed it out. Eleven, sought through through martyrdom, mothering, managing, and manipulating to improve your conscious contact with me. Asking only that you read my mind and carry out my wishes. And 12, having had a complete emotional, physical, and spiritual breakdown as a result of this type of living, I tried to drag all those I love down with me and get sympathy and pity from all who would listen. What's sad is that was kind of who I was, uh, but I wouldn't have ever seen it. You know, alcoholism may have affected me differently than it affected the alcoholic, but it affected me every bit as severely. Uh, when I came into the rooms, I was physically sick. I had uh, ulcers. I had intestinal problems. I had, um, I had asthma. I had active eating disorder. I was depressed. I uh, was suicidal half the time, but nobody ever had a clue. I was spiritually bankrupt. Um, but I always had a smile on my face. And I was there to help everybody else, and nobody knew that I was dying inside. I'll, I'll tell you that the, the reason I came to Alcon uh, was because I was dating an alcoholic, and he wouldn't marry anybody, 
unless uh, they were in Al-Anon. And uh, I went to Al-Anon to manipulate him into marrying me, and it worked, sticks here. Um, and I, it's probably the fault of all of you that live around Louisville, uh, because he had hung out with so many Al-Anons, and he saw family recovery. You know, I'm kidding, but it was, uh, it was, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that, that he saw that family recovery early on in his sobriety, and he wanted it. And so um, if he hadn't have wanted that so badly, um, I might be married to him and not here, and he might be speaking and I might be at home. So um, I'm very grateful. And I definitely belonged here. You'll see that um, as I share my story. I didn't realize how much so when I first got here. Um, I um, came from a long line of alcoholics. Uh, you know, some people do their genealogy and they uncover all kinds of things. I've discovered a lot of alcoholics. Um, my father, uh, his father, my father was the baby of 14 kids. And um, his father tried to commit suicide when my dad was seven. And his, uh, my grandfather was put in the North Carolina State Mental Institution. And he died there five years later. My father hadn't seen his father in five years and could barely remember what he looked like, so he snuck into the funeral home to see his father one last time. And what he saw was a body with both arms and both legs broken, and the body was black and blue. And um, I did some research, and at that point in time in the mental institutions in North Carolina, they were experimenting on alcoholics to try to see if they could cure alcoholism, and they had wondered if by breaking a limb you know, causing some pain like that, they could solve alcoholism. So that's what happened to my grandfather. That's how he died as a result of that. And that's only two generations ago. Um, my, um, uh, Dick and I were speaking in Maryland at the Maryland State AA Convention several years ago. And as he shared last night, he came from this long line of military heroes. So he wanted to go to Gettysburg and see the Battle of Gettysburg from his ancestors' point of view. So we had a historian actually show us the battle and what happened where in, uh, on the Gettysburg property from his point of view. And then we went to Mount Airy, North Carolina, and we stayed in Andy Griffith's childhood home. And uh, you can actually do that. And uh, the next morning, Goober brings you the paper, and, uh, or a look-like. And uh, so we went downtown to have lunch at the Snappy Lunch, and then we went to this museum. And in the museum um, was an Andy Griffith Museum display, but also a special display, The Tragedy of the Allen Women. And that was my maiden name. And Dick said, well, we've got to see what this is. And we were in North Carolina, after all. So I went in and I discovered that my ancestors perpetrated the worst courthouse shooting of all times. Uh, it was about moonshine. It was kind of a cross between the Hatfield and the McCoys and Romeo and Juliet because there was like a, a, a member of both families that were in love with each other. And some big war over moonshine, and they'd had this big sh shootout. And there was 14 men that all looked like my dad. And I wondered why my dad hadn't shared this story with me. But um, he, uh, he did tell me that one of his uncles was murdered by a rival moonshine gang on his front porch. Uh, but my dad was from Rockingham, North Carolina. This is how, you know, you can color things if you want to. He was from Rockingham, North Carolina, uh, which is the home of NASCAR. And NASCAR was de developed from moonshine runners. So here I put it together. My family invented NASCAR. 
Okay. Um, it, although for y'all, it's probably the other is probably more exciting. Anyway, um, the uh, and my mother and father were my mother's mother and father were both alcoholic. Her father um, came from money, and I didn't know this growing up. A lot of y'all are coming to Atlanta for the international. The, the property that is now Peachtree and 14th Street, which is definitely the high rent district, actually belonged to my ancestors. So I'm glad I didn't know this growing up. Uh, I might have had more resentment. And, um, but, um, you know, his, his father, this is my great-great-grandfather, gave all the kids some money, said, make something of it, you get some more. Get, make nothing of it, you get nothing. And so my um, uh, grandfather... Um, squandered it all, was written out of the will, and actually when he died was buried in a pauper's grave. And what did my grandmother do? She divorced him and got another alcoholic. Um, that grandmother, my mother's mother, was the alcoholic I knew most growing up. I uh, had these two adult children of alcoholics. They didn't really know much about being parents because they weren't parented all that well. And uh, they were trying to do the best they could. And I, they took me to grandmother's every weekend so they could have their time together. And um, the first thing my grandmother and I did every Saturday morning was go to the liquor store. Now, I didn't find this unusual at the time, and we didn't go to just one, we went to three. She told me she was bargain shopping, but I don't think she <laughs> wanted any of them to know how much liquor she actually bought every week. So we would do our liquor shopping, and I, it was probably illegal back then too, but they would take me in behind the counter and have some candy or some toys or something, and they would talk to me while my grandmother did her shopping because she was a very good patron. And then we would be off on some kind of adventure. I saw my grandmother as colorful, but really she was trying to do something with me and where she could get a drink. Uh, we would go to um, an art gallery uh, opening, which had an open bar. We would go to uh, see a Broadway show, which had an open bar. We would go to the symphony, which had an open bar. We would go to a festival at Piedmont Park, which had a beer garden. Um, you know, she would go get her hair fixed every now and then, and I found out from some of my female AA friends that the place that she went would give the ladies a glass of wine or two while they would cut their hair. Um, sometime we would go and she would say, Let, we're going to go try on ball gowns. And I never really, you know, I never got any of these dresses, but we would go to some fancy lady shop. And I also found out from my AA women friends that they would give the ladies a glass of wine or two to drink while they tried on their dresses. One weekend I showed up and she had decided she wanted me to play the accordion. Um, Lawrence Welk was her favorite show. And so, um... We went shopping for accordions at music shops, and um, I, of course, didn't get the accordion. I, didn't, I never quite got the fact that we shopped for things we didn't get. But um, I don't know what she found at the music stores, but the next weekend, uh, she said, oh, she changed her mind. She decided she wanted me to play the harp. So we went back and looked for harps. So anyway, whenever the adventure of the day was, would be over, and we would come back to her house, and we would unpack her trunk of liquor, and usually there would be some cheese and bread in there somewhere. The only thing I ever actually remember eating at my grandmother's house was cheese toast. And we would settle down for my cheese toast and watch Lawrence Welk and her three martinis. And somewhere in the middle of the bubbles, uh, she would fall asleep. Um, now, you know, I, I didn't know that was unusual. Um, 
I, uh, you know, there was one, one particular weekend I remember going out on the back stoop and break it and cutting my feet on some broken glass, which were fr probably from her liquor bottles, and I couldn't wake her up, so I got into the bathtub, um, and I remember seeing red blood rushing out in the water and didn't know what to do, and somehow or other, out of her drunken stupor, she came and got me out of the bathtub and had me stand on two towels and went back to bed. Yet, when Dick and I had our first date and he asked me if I had any alcoholism in my family, I told him no. You know, uh, Alanine's book from Survival to Recovery, Growing Up in an Alcoholic Home, says adult children of alcoholics have an abnormal sense of reality. We think our life is normal and we don't know that everybody doesn't live like we do. You know, in later years I would find out after my uncle got sober that my mother actually spent the majority of her growing up years in and out of tenements. Um, you know, my grandmother was really not doing well at all, and uh, they would even get evicted out of those. And I wondered why she was so frugal. Um, so as soon as I could find, you know, sometimes grandmother would wake back up on Saturday night, and then she would take me out to the honky-tonks. These were not the fine ladies' establishments. These were the concrete or dirt or sawdust floored places, and I would try to curl up underneath the barroom table that was probably with wet beer or whatever while she would party above me. Yet, I had no idea my life would, had been affected by alcoholism. I did know that I found every excuse I could not to go back to grandmother's as soon as I could. And um, I grew up terrified of alcohol. Now, I probably would have told you back then that it also had to do with the fact that I was Southern Baptist. Um, but it had probably a lot more to do with my family. Um, so, you know, I, uh, I was very shy growing up. I was, I called myself, um, socially anorexic. I don't know if that's a real word, but I just, you know, I had four dates in all of high school and those were places I had to have a date. Um, and, uh, I had to ask the guy and I graduated from high school and, um, uh, you know, my parents had told me that I wouldn't go to college unless I made good grades, and I was a geek or nerd or whatever the popular term is today. And um, I went off to college, and I decided I wanted to be a little bit more social in college. And so um, I, uh, the first guy that asked me out asked me if I wanted to go to church with him. And I said, well, sure. It was probably a good you know, good question for me back then. And so we went to church, and on the way back, he pulled over on the side of the road. We were just talking about how he had grown up. And he'd end up, up at this small college because he had caught his dad in the act of adultery with another woman. <clears throat> and his mother had sent him to this particular college to hide him from his dad because he was going to have to testify against him in the divorce case. And he started sobbing. And I was automatically in love. You know, here was somebody who could share his emotions and... He was, you know, telling me about his life, and he needed me, you know. Um, well, he was, this was, the, this was the 70s, and it was a Baptist college, and it, I was a music student, <clears throat> and uh, I didn't really pick up on the si signals, you know, very quickly. You know, he also liked Barbara Streisand. He loved to dance, and uh, um, anyway... Eventually, he finally had told me that he was gay, and, you know, he was trying not to be. And um, I, reconnected, um, I reconnected with him on Facebook not too long ago, <clears throat> and we were talking, and um, he, he said that, well, you know, at least 80, 90% of the guys that went to Shorter were 
gay. And uh, I suddenly realized how I'd made it all the way through college as a virgin, but that's probably an outside issue. Anyway, um, if you're at a Baptist college, you know, uh, in the music department, it's probably going to happen more than once that you're going to go out with somebody who's trying to decide whether they're gay or not. Anyway, um, so I graduated from college, and I decided I was going to save the world. There was Joan of Arc, and there was Barbara the Baptist. And so I went off to seminary, and I ended up in Louisville at Southern Seminary. And um, I was, uh, during my first semester, I was playing the piano and leading the children's choirs at a church out in Linden, Kentucky. And a man came in on a Sunday night and asked if he could speak to the congregation, and he got up and he made amends to the church. Now, I have never seen anybody make amends to a church before or since, but that man is my husband. And uh, it didn't happen that quick, you know. Um, He was, um, you know, around that point in sobriety that his sponsor had told him he could go out if he could find anybody who would go out with him. And so he saw me up in the choir and... uh, he said he prayed this very eloquent prayer, God, she'd do. And uh, uh, so he asked me out, and I told him no, uh, because I was going out with somebody else in the church at that time who ended up to be gay. And um, anyway, so we didn't go out then. Um, I uh, graduated from seminary, and I ended up back in Atlanta, and... Um, I'll come back to that in a little bit, but um, we were, um, I I was at uh, a mall in Georgia, and uh, uh, a man came up to me and said, I know I know you from somewhere, and I said, I didn't think anybody ever actually used that line, and, uh, you know, I finally gave him my phone number, it was Dick, and I gave him the hardest time, I'm not sure why, I think I kind of, I thought, well, I was Elizabeth Bennett, and he was Mr. Darcy or something, it probably prejudiced, but... um, Anyway, um, I finally agreed to go out with him, and um, the first date, we went to um, a five-star restaurant, and we went to see a Broadway show, and a big date back then was like Sizzler in a dollar movie, so I didn't know what to think, and he told me on this first date um, his AA story in brief, and I kind of remembered hearing it at that Baptist church long ago, and um, I told him a lot about me too, and... um, uh, on the second date, we went to an equally nice restaurant. We went to a movie. And the third date, we went to this place called Chastain Park. It's an outdoor amphitheater. And uh, he had a catered dinner brought in. And uh, it was a Johnny Mathis concert. But it was the third date. And so um, during the course of the evening, he told me that he thought uh, uh, that God had destined us to be together and that um, I was the one for him. And I told him I wasn't really even sure I was attracted to him. And uh, he told me he didn't think I knew what to do with a heterosexual, which was probably true. So anyway. So anyway, during the next few months, um, I kind of went through the guys I had dated. And, you know, there, there were the gay guys. There were also a lot of guys from seminary that were looking for a preacher's wife. And I just... You know, I didn't fit the bill. It was like, do you play the piano? You know, do you love the Women's Missionary Union? I, you know, I just never, I never passed these interviews of preacher's wife. So um, anyway, I, I, didn't, I didn't find anybody that was, you know, either s- still available 
and heterosexual. So uh, I called Dick, and I told him I thought that maybe I'd made a mistake, and we started going out. Um, and um, I, it wasn't an automatic thing. I mean, things didn't happen overnight because he had also, he was 34, and he was uh, straight, and he was dating a lot, and you know, he wasn't quite sure after what had happened before, but we we started dating, and um, one thing led to another, and we decided to get married. Um, but before that happened, I uh, he did tell me that he would never marry anybody unless they were in Al-Anon, and um, I went to Al-Anon primarily to manipulate him and to marry me. I re- I, I remembered this. Um, uh, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. I actually went to my first Al-Anon meetings in uh, Shively. Um, I was uh, a, a seminary student, and I had a, a young per- person who had an alcoholic dad, and um, I had heard about Al-Anon, and I recommended it to him, and I told him I'd go with him. And so I went to some meetings, not Shively, um, Simpsonville. What's near Simpsonville? Shelbyville. And... Um, so I went to some meetings there with him and uh, several meetings. I, and I liked him. I didn't know why. And um, they told me about an Alateen meeting, and I took him to the Alateen meeting. They let me sit in once, and they told me they'd take it from there, and they'd make sure he got to the meeting. So I didn't go to any more meetings. But the, the, the first meeting I went to when Dick and I were dating was we'd gone away for the weekend, and um, we went to um, Charleston, and he rented, like, the second floor of this mansion. You know, we had a beautiful bedroom, and we had this living room area with a piano, grand piano in it, and, you know, this beautiful place and romantic weekend. But it was, unfortunately, during the NCAA finals, and uh, uh, he's just a little bit of a Kentucky fan, and uh, so he was watching TV all weekend, and uh, <laughs> I thought, maybe there's something to this alcoholism. So I went to my first meeting the Monday after we got back because of University of Kentucky basketball. Anyway, <laughs> anyway um, but I, I started, I'm, my, my initial phase in Al-Anon, I kind of call my, um, my Cliff Notes version of the program. You know, I was trying to gather the information, and I thought they probably really needed me, and uh, I'd go to meetings, and I rarely went to one twice because I was looking for the perfect meeting and the meeting that needed me the most. And I would get there during the last minute, and I'd leave during the prayer. And um, I, uh, you know, I was on course. And Dick suggested I get a sponsor, and he even suggested someone, and there was no one. I was, no way. I, was. I went to the next meeting, and I, uh, you know, the woman who led the discussion, sounded like she had her act together, and I asked her if she'd be my sponsor. And I told her I was, I had already done my fourth step, and uh you know, auditing the course, and um, why don't you give it to me tonight, and I'll let you know what I think, and that is not the way to do a fifth step, by the way, and so she called me later, and she said, run, and I said, what, she said, run, don't be involved with this guy, don't marry this guy, your life will be a living hell, you don't, you're still, you still can get out, don't marry an alcoholic, you'll be sorry the rest of your life, in fact, my husband's in the other room having sex with another woman, and think I call I don't think I picked the right sponsor so uh, anyway I have what I call eraser outs 
and I was thinking about that when you were speaking. You know, um, I just, if, so, if something is bad enough, it just erases from my memory bank if I resent somebody enough. So I don't remember this woman's name. I don't remember what she looks like. She's gone, you know. Um, you, you, if one of you were her, don't worry, I won't recognize you. You know, I've never had anybody come up and say, oh, it was me. You know? But um, anyway, um, I went back to that meeting once to get my um, four-step back from her. Um, but I, I eventually asked to be my sponsor and eventually asked, actually asked the woman that Dick suggested, but that was a little less down the road. Anyway, I convinced him I was working the program enough for us to get married. And when we got married, the church was divided to threes. There was a third that was members of AA and a third that were Baptists and a third that were and, um, we had alcohol at the wedding for the family members and I'm not sure which were bothered more the members of AA or the Baptists but I'm pretty sure it was the Baptists. And um, so anyway I had, you know, I had seen all these movies you know, the happily ever after movies didn't know what happened after that, you know. And so Dick came from a family that would recreationally argue over white or wheat bread for dinner. And two hours later, it would be about politics or something else, and they were still arguing. And I came from a family who didn't argue about anything. In fact, you know, our kind of pat answer to any question was, I don't care, whatever you would like to do. And... um I don't know how many times I said that to Dick before he was tired of it and he pulled over on the side of the road and said, we're not going anywhere till you tell me where you want to go. And I said, well, we can go there. I know you like that. Or we could go over there. And he said, no, where do you want to go? And so I picked the one I thought that he would like the best. But, you know, <clears throat> eventually I realized I had my own opinion and I had a victory. You know, I'd say what I wanted to do. And then he would want to do that, and so then we had to learn about compromise. So I'm not sure if he's glad he ever taught me that lesson. But um, anyway, uh, the people-pleasing thing went out the window. But, you know, we would argue, and I wasn't used to arguing. And so the first two years, I kept my bag packed. You know, and I, every now and then I would ceremoniously announce, maybe it was longer than that, I'd ceremoniously announce that I was going to leave. And he'd say, okay. And I'd say, no, you don't understand, I'm going to go. And he'd say, yeah, I got it. And I'd go and I'd get my bag out of the closet, and I'd walk back into the room with the bag in my hand, and, he's, and I'd say, I really am going. He said, I know you are. I'll see you later. And I'd head to the door, and i put my hand on the door, and i open it, but I had, I'd look back at him. I said, I'm going. He said, I know. I'll see you later. And I'd go out the door, and I'd stick my head back in and say, you understand I'm leaving? And he said, yes, I do. I'll see you later. And so then I'd get down to the car, and in my fantasy, because it was, you know, I watched a lot of movies, he would run down the stairs and say, oh, beloved, don't go. But he never did that. And it's all the fault of Louisville Alamance. But anyway, uh, I had heard so many stories from Alamance uh, about how we try to manipulate people that nothing I tried ever worked. You know, it never worked. So, you know, I would get in the car and I'd drive around. And I didn't want my parents to think we were really having trouble. So I only, you know, rarely went out to see them, although I did a time or two. And I'd go around and I'd cry and whatever. And I'd come back a couple hours later with my bag. I never spent the night out. You know, I'd come back with my bag and he'd say hi and I'd say hi. And I'd put the bag back in the closet. Now, <clears throat> I would like to tell you I did that once. I don't know how many times I did you know. And, um. Uh, 
it's the definition of insanity, though. Um, when we first got married, I, Dick was six and a half years sober, so I thought he was well. And I didn't him, so he thought I was well. I think he was in more denial. I was a mess. Um, in 1985, we went off to the International Convention in Montreal. And we got on the plane, and um, it was one of those L-1011 that had five seats in the middle and two on the outside. And they don't fly them anymore because they took so much fuel. But um, somebody made an announcement, are there any friends of Bill W. on the plane? And there was probably 100. And I can imagine what Dick was like when he was table hopping because he was bouncing around the plane talking to everybody, and I never felt more like I didn't fit in. I, could, I didn't get it. I just, it didn't feel right. And so, um, because he was talking to everybody, I was sitting in my seat. And um, we got there, and um, I hope you all are coming to Atlanta, the international conventions, the 4th of July weekend this year in Atlanta. Um, but I got there, and, you know, people would run, run across the street and hug you. And I was still, you know, that you can tell in early Al-Anon because often we just don't want to be hugged, you know, in the beginning. And I was kind of still in that phase, and I uh, wasn't quite so sure about this. And we got back to the room that night, and um, I went in the bathroom, and I came out with a razor in my hand, and I told him I thought I was just going to kill myself. And I didn't get the reaction I thought I was going to get. And he's already spoken, so he can't, you know, it's just no rebuttal. So um, I, he started laughing at me, you know. And the reason why, it was one of those pink, big, daisy razors. And I had been using it for about two weeks to shave my legs. So I really wasn't going to hurt myself very much with it. Um, but I think the only one of us that's ever been physical with the other is I think I tried to punch him in the belly or something. And then I just broke and started sobbing. And he said, honey, if there's ever time for you to go to Al-Anon for you, it might be here. You're at the International Convention. So the next opening of Al-Anon's first back then in, in Montreal, the Al-Anon International was held at the same time as the AA International. And uh, so we went to the opening meeting of Al-Anon's International the next morning. And the speaker was Lois Wilson. And I still get goosebumps when I think about it, because when I was really ready for the message of Al-Anon, it was Lois herself that brought it to me. And she talked about the fact that this was a spiritual program. It wasn't a spiritual side of the program. It was a spiritual program. It was a transforming way of living. We never had to be the same again. And I heard that. And she also talked about our big three A's, Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, and Alateen, and our family program and how we're one big family. And that's why I'm so happy that y'all celebrate family recovery here at this convention. Um, so by the time I left Montreal, I had finally taken the first step myself. Well, the second and third step were a lot harder for me than I thought. See, I, you know, I was a seminary grad. I, you know, I knew all about God. Just, you know, figured I'd kind of skip over second and third, but it, they were actually a whole lot harder for me because of that. The year I graduated from the seminary was the year that the Baptist passed a resolution. Eve was the first to sin, and therefore women should not lead over men, and women in ministry would be strongly discouraged. So here I'd spent seven years in college and seminary getting ready to be a minister and told that I wasn't wanted. And uh, I had a lot of interviews, though, and I'm only going to tell you about one. One of them was down in Alabama, 
And I don't remember the city, and I don't remember the name of the church, and I don't remember what anybody looked like in the room. It was kind of one of those brownout things. And, but it was a big circle of people and one chair in the middle of the room. And they ushered me into the chair in the middle of the room, and the man that sat across from me said, we just wanted to see what someone like you, a woman who would have the audacity to apply for this job, would look like. That's all. And I had driven from Louisville to this town in Alabama for that. And I didn't know what to say. Now, I've thought of a lot of things since then. But the words that came out of my mouth were, I hope you're going to pay my expenses. And from this part of the circle, a man threw some money on the floor. And I picked the money and I walked out of the circle. And that became God to me. And I didn't realize it. Didn't realize it for a long time. Now, that had nothing to do with God. That had to do with people and denominational politics and all. But it still settled into me that way. When I got to Al-Anon, you know, when I got to Al-Anon, I really wanted to be an AA. In fact, I tried to qualify a couple of times. Those were funny stories. And um, uh, I loved speaker meetings. The first speaker I heard was Jack Sullivan. And, um, you know, when he was talking about um, living in a cardboard box, and um, some man came and knocked on his cardboard box and said, if you pay this bill, I'm going to make, unless you pay this bill, I'm going to make your life miserable. And he's already living in a cardboard box. And, uh, you know, and how God turned his life around and how many people he was able to help. I just, I loved AA meetings and I loved, I loved speaker meetings. I loved to hear how people, how God worked in other people's lives. But I didn't believe that was going to happen to me because I'd already offered God my life and he didn't want it. And, um, I think the steps hold hands with each other, and sometimes there's something in the step before it or the step after it that we have to do to truly work a step. And uh, for me, I had to do a God inventory, and um, my sponsor suggested it. And I wrote down everything that happened to me in the church, uh, and I wrote down everything that I had believed about God in early childhood on, and um, I did a, a thorough inventory of my uh, of my beliefs and um, also during that time she suggested that I keep a God journal and then I write down anything that was beyond my human understanding that happened that day if it was a phone call when I needed it if it was a hug when I needed it if it was um, a deer on the lawn in the morning if it was a beautiful flower or a sunrise or a sunset um, if, whatever it was, I was supposed to write it down. Sometimes it was your, y'all's stories. I would hear stories in meetings that would be it. Um, Dick and I were having some real financial trouble around this time, and our life's kind of been a financial roller coaster um, through our life together. But I think this particular one was because I needed to learn this lesson. And, and I, uh, I, was, um, I, I, just didn't, I just didn't know what to do. And we had a dog named Booger Bear, and... Uh, Burger Bear, when I would pray, he would get down and put his head on the bed, his paws on the bed when I would pray on my knees. And so I was praying, and I said, God, I, I don't even know how to ask for help, but I don't, we don't have the money for food this week, and, and I, I'm terrified. I don't know what to do. And about two hours later, there was a knock on my front door, and there was a friend of mine I hadn't seen in several months, and she was standing there with eight bags of groceries. And she said, I just had a feeling you needed these today. Now, Bill Wilson had his bright light, and Noah had his burning bush, and I had eight bags of groceries, you know. I finally took the second and third step that day, and I believed that God loved me, and uh, things were going to be okay, eventually. 
And so um, that God cared about me. So, you know, there were so many lessons that I had to learn. Um, I had an incredible amount of self-centered pride, and I really didn't see it. Around that time, a friend of mine had given me their old drunk car, and this was not a beautiful vehicle. But my car had died, and I didn't have the money for a car, and they gave me their old car. The hood was rusted in the in front. Rusted into it was Judy Loves Donnie. Okay. All right. The uh, taillights in the back were broken out, and there was red reflector tape over them. Uh, there was no air conditioning, and the headliner was falling down. So when you rolled down the back windows, the headliner would kind of flap out the back window, and the dust from the dried glue that used to hold it up would, would you know, fly out the back window. It was beautiful. And uh, um, puke green, lovely color. And so when I would go to meetings, I would park it about two blocks away, and I would jog into the meeting like I was a very healthy person. And... Uh, you know, the day that I was able to drive that car into the parking lot and be grateful for it was the day things started to change. Um, I, uh, you know, I had a tremendous amount of fear when I uh, first got married, and um, my parents had taught me a lot of my fears came from things that weren't completely reality, you know, things that my dad had passed on. You know, he told me, now, if you go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you have to look in the toilet because there might be a rat there. And... He grew, had to look at his reality. He grew up on the farm with an outhouse, okay? It was a lot different than indoor plumbing, although we did have a, a snake in our bathroom not too long ago. So um, I, uh, I was terrified. I grew up terrified of mice. I don't know why. And um, we had a mouse in our house when we first got married. I made Dick get rid of it. And then I was working for him for a while, and we had our office building got infested with mice, and I was the business manager, and I worked from home. And while the employees would call screaming when there was a mouse running up the phone cord, it was a while ago, phone cords. And, um, uh, you know, I did get over it. We moved, when we were moved out to the country one day, I screamed bloody murder because I had seen a rat. And Dick said, oh, I'm sure it was just a big mouse. And I said, no, this was a rat. And so the next morning, there was slid underneath the bedroom door a note that said, don't come out, I have Mickey points. And uh, a few minutes later, Dick came in, and he had on his bathrobe and his army boots and uh, a 9 millimeter in one hand and a crowbar in the other. And his hair was longer then. It was kind of out like Bozo the Clown. And uh, he had been up all night doing war with the rats. There were eight of them. And uh, my sponsor actually gave me permission to move out for a day or two while he dealt with them. More because it was like a scene out of Willard. <laughs> uh, but I'm not scared of mice anymore. And that's just a crazy story. And if we don't deal with our fears when they're small, sometimes they grow. Um, I, uh, you know, I remember um, I, Dick was 34 when we got married. And he, he was, you know, he'd been living alone for a long time. As he told you, he'd been engaged several times, but nobody ever married him. And, so, and, and maybe he had people live with him during that time. That's not my business. And, but um, uh, I, I don't know how many times I got mad about the toilet seat. Now, I'm, I don't want to cause any arguments. But um, I called my sponsor. You know, I'd fall in in the middle of the night. And my sponsor told me she wanted me to try something. And I said, what? She said, no, you have to, you have to agree to try it before I tell you what it is. 
and this is dangerous if sponsors ever do this to you. And so I said, okay. And she said, I want you to leave the seat up for him. And I said, you want me to do what? And she said, I want you to put the seat back up for him. It'll always be up. You'll always know you have to move it down. You won't have to worry about it. And so I said, you you're really mean that. She said, yeah. So the first time I put it back up, I think I almost broke the back of the toilet because I was kind of mad, you know. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, it started to get funny. You know, I'd come out of the bathroom giggling, I guess. And, you know, it, it was almost a month before Dick said anything. And he said, uh, have you developed some kind of new unusual bathroom habit? <laughs> I said, no, I'm just putting the seat back up for you, honey. And, uh, you know, it, it's just never been important since then. I can look, see if it's up or down, doesn't matter. Um, I used to look to see if there were rats, so it's... <laughs> anyway. Um, but, you know, it's, it's funny how those little things, you know, a toilet seat or the toothpaste tube can cause the beginning of the decline of a marriage. You know, it's just the little things. So today um, we really, uh, in fact, Dick and I sometimes do workshops on using the principles behind the traditions in our relationship. And we really try to um, value each other. And uh, most of the time the seat's down, honestly. Um, so the, the and we got to the amends part. And... You know, I'm just going to tell you about a couple of them. I had this roommate named Brooke, and um, when I had gotten mad at her, it was about a guy, and I had moved out. Uh, this was when I was in, in seminary, and um, uh, I had not left her a note. I had not left her the rent, which was due the next day. I had not left her a forwarding address, nothing. And so I tried to find her, and I couldn't find her. I didn't. Her phone number wasn't good. Her mom's number wasn't good. I couldn't find her in the phone book. Couldn't find her in the alumni association. So I thought I was off the hook. So <clears throat> we're on in a city I'd never been to, and I see her in the, in the mall coming the other way. And um, I walked over to her. I said, I can't believe you're here. I've been trying to find you. Told her a little bit about being in Al-Anon. Pulled out my business card. and said, I, I think I, you know, I owe you some money. I looked at my wallet about the amount of money I thought I owed her. I gave her some money. I gave her the business card. She never said a word. She just stared at me like this. But I, and for a minute, I wondered if it was her, but it, but it was. And um, so I gave her the money, and about a year later, she called me. And she said, Barbara, you'll never know what a gift you gave me that day. You know, I had so many people in my life that I had um, canceled out of my life. She hadn't talked to her mother in several years, and she had had a relationship. She now had a relationship with her mother again. And um, she said, and I found a room, another roommate the next day, so you don't owe me all that money. And so she sent me some of it back, and I haven't seen her again. But we're on each other's Christmas card list. So, you know, um, sometimes amends pay for it. You never know exactly what's going to happen on the other side. For my parents, you know, I just started including them in our life. And I would call them and find out how they were doing every day. And I got tired of my mother, you know, telling me what she was fixing for dinner. But, you know, she, she appreciated me calling her. And when, by then, you know, Dick and I were speaking some. And, you know, we would call um, when we were um, on the road. We'd tell her we were going where, somewhere. We'd call her and give her a phone number. They never called us, but they appreciated being included. Um, and um, we um, also, during that time, you know, I had been working for Dick for a while, and I, uh, uh, we needed somebody with a, a grown-up job, you know, with benefits and stuff. And so 
I uh, was at an Al-Anon, I was working as an Al-Anon at a professional conference managing the World Service Office booth. And somebody came up to me and said, you have a seminary degree, don't you? And I said, yes. And said, would you like to be a chaplain at Halfway House? And that's how I started working in addiction. And I've been doing it for 25 years. And I moved on from that to be a master's level addiction counselor and to be a clinical supervisor and have done national clinical outreach for several treatment centers and have even spoken as a professional at conferences, which was even a lot more terrifying than this. So, um, you know, I didn't pick that career. God picked it for me. You know, and um, right now I'm in a crossroads. I'm, I'm in between jobs, and I could use y'all's prayers because I'm not really sure what's supposed to be next. And um, I'm looking for the place that I could be a maximum service. Uh, to God and people about me. Um, when um, my mom and dad started getting sick, um, you know, we needed to move them into um, a place that was safer for them. They were kind of housebound. Every exit had lots of stairs. And um, uh, before that, you know, my mother had asked me to give her her 50-year pin in this organization she was in. I never really understood it was kind of like the Yaya sisterhood, but I did give it to her, and it was an honor. And, uh, and um, we gave them a big 50th anniversary party. And then we moved them into this senior apartment, and we got them all new furniture, and new pictures all over the wall, and they were closer to us so I could visit them all the time. And uh, about six months after I moved them in, I got a call that my dad had been found non-responsive, and they hadn't been able to revive him. And... Um, through God uh, and Delta Airlines, Dick was home with me that day. He was supposed to be speaking in Colorado, but he, the plane had gotten out on the tarmac and um, had stopped because they had some kind of technical problem, and they kept him on the plane, I don't know, three hours trying to fix it. Eventually took him back off, said they're going to have to get new equipment. And he was the Friday night speaker, so they had to get somebody else. So he was home with me. So, um, you know, we had a beautiful service for my dad. It had been a long time since my mother had really put on makeup or fixed up her hair, and so we played dress-up that day and got her ready, and she got to see all of her friends and family. And the next day, we left to go to the Hilton Head Roundup, and um, uh, we had a, you know, a great time there. And on Monday, we decided to stay over a day, and we are sitting out on a dock having some shrimp and got a phone call that my mother had been found non-responsive and uh, that they had revived her, but they weren't sure she was going to make it. And I was in shock, and Dick was mad. And um, we got in the, in the car and started coming back. And Dick was speeding and got pulled over by the police, I think, because God wanted him to have somebody to be mad at besides him. Because <clears throat> he kind of was mad at the police the rest of the way. And um, we stopped at a Wendy's to go to the bathroom. And I remember going in the Wendy's and hearing on the Muzak, How Great Thou Art, which was a hymn we just sung at my dad's service. And I never heard a hymn in a Wendy's. And I asked the woman in the other stall if, that was actually how great thou art. She said, yeah, that's weird to have a hymn in Wendy's. And so, you know, but we had just sung that at my dad's funeral. And so somehow or other, it was a message that things were going to be okay. It was during, the, and, and we got back, and Dick and I were holding each one of mom's hands, and we were saying the uh, Lord's Prayer, and right in the middle of thy will be done, she passed. And I'd heard people talk about the gift of being with a parent when they pass away, but I never realized what, what a gift it really was. The woman I was with when she left. Um, 
It was during that time um, that I really saw how little in my life I had lived one day at a time, and I had lived today. Um, shortly before my mom and dad died, our dog Booger Bear, who was 18, uh, died, and um, he was the dog that was with me when I prayed, and the, the uh, groceries were delivered, and uh, we, Dick and I sobbed and sobbed. We told each other at the time we weren't sure we would cry that much for each other when, when we died. And, uh, but he taught us how to grieve. He had taught me how to, he had been part of me believing, you know. And here, have you ever looked at the word dog in the mirror? It's God. And so there was something about that unconditional love of Booger Bear who had brought me closer with the God of my understanding. So, um. You know, Booger Bear died, my mom and dad had died. And I, I realized during that time it was too much to deal with in the big picture, in the whole package. I had to look for God's gift in that day, each day. How great thou art in a Wendy's is a pretty big gift, you know. And, uh, and there were other gifts every day. I had spent the majority of my life living in yesterday, resentment, what didn't go my way, you know, pain, whatever, or tomorrow, fear, and how am I going to make this happen the way I want to, that I'd miss my own life. Uh, Dick and I were at a conference in Savannah, and we were eating at a restaurant. He said, you remember when we ate here when we were two years married? And I didn't remember the restaurant at all. You know, my brain was just like that. I just didn't remember things. I, I existed through my life rather than living it, and I didn't realize it until this time. So I started to try to capture those gifts of God in each day. I started trying to live my life that way. Um, it was also during this time that Dick found out he had cancer. And um, he didn't tell me right away, as he told y'all, although he did give me a piece of paper to our human uh, resources woman to see if she could get um, Aetna to pay for his treatment out in California. And on it was um, carcinoma. And I'm not dumb. And I just, you know, I, I just didn't really want to know, you know. So, and I'm glad I didn't because, you know, in the Google age, if I had started Googling his cancer before we went to Rochester, I would have been terrified because of the rates of survival. So by the time we're heading to Rochester uh, for his cancer surgery, you know, I, I'm a, I was born in Atlanta. Um, I didn't want to go to Yankee land to see my husband die. And... So, um, you know, I, we had called everybody we could. I had been delegate. He'd been delegate. We were supposed to speak in Syracuse the next year, so we called the people that were on that committee, and there was 23 people to greet us when we got to the hotel. And I really was going to need those people. I mean, Dick was in the hospital, but he told you a lot of the story last night, so I'm not going to repeat his part. But, you know, when the, the day of his surgery, it was a 15-hour surgery, and one of those special people that I met up there sat with me, you know. And there's one daytime meeting in Rochester, New York, and it's on, it's on Wednesday, and it's on, which was the day of his surgery, and it's right across from the hospital. So I went to a meeting during the middle of his surgery. And last month, uh, the woman that was in that meeting asked me to speak in Rochester. So I got to be re reunited with a bunch of those people that were close to me during that time including the couple that helped take care of me. Um, but uh, Dick had a surgery, and they told us that he might be in ICU for a couple weeks. And the next day I got to ICU, and he was arguing with 
uh, the nurse about the sun shining on the TV and um, the nurse said, we don't ever have anybody talk to us in ICU. And so very shortly, he was not in ICU. He was in a critical care unit, but not ICU. And so um, the first time the therapist came to get him to walk to the end of the bed uh, to physical therapy, um, he lapped the nurse's station three times. And they said, you don't have to walk that far. He said, I want to. And so, you know, he was so determined to get better. And we had thousands of cards and flowers and all these visitors. And one day uh, there was a couple of staff members and they were in there going, who is this guy? (laughs) And he had a tube down his throat so he really could barely talk, but he said, I'm just drunk. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but, um, Dick did survive all that. And, um, you know, but in the middle of that, we lost our, all of our savings. We lost our house. You know, he lost the ability to work for a long time. And again, it was that one day at a time. You know, it sounds like a country song. You know, when you think of it, our dog and mom and dad and then his mom and then him and, you know, house and, you know. Things just became less and less important. And the one day at a time gifts that we got got more and more important. Um, I, um, uh, during that, a couple years after that, a friend of mine who actually had been my host at a conference in West Virginia, um, called me and asked me to go do communion with his brother. And, um, he, I said, Booth, I'm not ordained. He said, I don't care. Go get some grape juice and some bread and go do communion with my brother. And so, and he said, by the way, why aren't you ordained? Somebody ordain you. I dare you. So I found an internet church that I got an ordinate, ordination with. And um, so the first thing that happened after that is I had a sponsee who died. And she was 58. She had um, uh, a pulmonary embolism and died, you know, instantly. And the family asked me to do the service. And I, I had ne- never done a service. I'd never done a funeral. I didn't know what to do. And so I was praying the day before. And... I had this blue heron, you know, when we uh, lost our house, we leased a house out in the country, and it's on a lake, on a seven-acre lake, beautiful lake, and uh, it was a real gift how we got, how we found the house, and uh, the owners were just grateful to have somebody in the house that were responsible, and so the day that Booger Bear died, the day that Mom died, the day that Dad died, the days that I was low, there would be this blue heron that would show up on the lake, and so... Um, I looked out of the lake expecting to see the blue heron, and what I saw was a hawk who landed on the banister. And I just stared at the hawk, and the hawk stared at me, and I don't know how long. Okay, I'm an eighth Cherokee, and so there's some part of me that really relates to nature. And so after I, I, I looked away for a minute, and the hawk flew off. And so I, I Googled Native American symbolism, the hawk. And what I found was a hawk was... Uh, a messenger of God, encouraging us to rise over the earthly plane and see our lives from a new perspective. So I talked in the service about death and life and seeing Karen's life from a new perspective. And um, at that same time, her family had decided to sing Wind Beneath My Wings um, at, at the service. And, you know, now whether Karen was the hawk or sent the hawk or I don't know. Yeah, I don't even, it's not even important. But I, I f- always felt like she planned her service. But um, anyway, I started seeing hawks. 222 days in a row, I think, I saw a hawk. And by then, I was traveling all over the country for a treatment center I was working for. 
And no matter where I was, I'd see a hawk. I saw sea hawks down at the water. I saw up in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. I saw, you know, one day I saw 56. That day I told God he was showing off. And uh, just everywhere I went. And uh, maybe they were always there. But again, I never really lived my life in the present until all this start, stuff started happening. Uh, so I never saw them. I think God's gifts are always there. We just don't see them. There's a lot of hawks around here, by the way. I've been seeing hawks every day I've been here. Um, so I knew that it was time for me to see my life from a new perspective. And, um, and, and that's what I'm trying to do now. I'm not sure exactly where God's taken me from here, but I know uh, that I'm in f- for the ride. And I thank you all for having me.